Amen. Romans chapter 1. Would you flip over there and join me this morning? Romans chapter 1. We kicked this off last week, um, a new series, uh, The Gospel of God's Grace. You said I thought there were only four Gospels. Well, you got another Gospel. If, almost, uh, if Paul could have written a Gospel, this is his version of it. It's the Gospel of the Grace of God. Uh, last week, I'm going to real, real quickly, for all of us to kind of recap and get kind of, I'm not going to re-preach that message. Obviously, we wouldn't have time to do that and move forward, but uh, I want us to just kind of very briefly review a few things, not all of the seven things that we looked at as background material, Um, and then we mainly focused last week on verse 1, this week we want to move forward uh, through verse number 7 for as much as as time allows this morning. Last week we looked at several things as we introduced uh, this book of Romans. We said the author was this Apostle Paul. And just a few, just to recap, we said that Paul was the most specially educated man in the history of the world because he was reared in the town of Tarsus in what we call Turkey, Asia Minor in his day, in the, in the region of Cilicia. And that's important because Tarsus was one of the top three university cities in the world. And so even as a young man, he gets the best liberal arts education a student could have. But then because he was a Jew and his father was a Pharisee, he went down to Jerusalem and received the absolute best training in what we call the Old Testament. They didn't have the New Testament, so they wouldn't have called it the Old Testament. But he had the best training from the highest ranking, most well-known, most respected rabbi of the day, Gamaliel. And let me tell you something. I'm sure there's some great Hebrew scholars in Israel and New York City and various places around the world today. But I'm telling you, no way they're too far removed from the language of the Old Testament that those guys back in, in Paul's day would have been the best of the best. And so Paul had the best training in the Old Testament uh, that, that could have been had. And then, if that wasn't enough, Jesus, after he saved him, took Paul and set him, pulled him apart and for three years personally tutored him in the doctrine of what we now call the New Testament. No one's ever been trained like the Apostle Paul. We said the date of the writing. This was a book written from the city of Corinth in Greece to a group of of saints in Rome, several hundreds of miles away, around A.D. 58. So Paul is finishing up the third missionary journey. He's in Corinth. He's collected the money. He's getting ready to take that money to the poor saints who are over in Jerusalem, and he's got a whole team of people to help accompany the money. And Corinth was one of the last stops. He'll swing back around, stop by Ephesus, and off he's going to go to Jerusalem. And he has a plan. He wants to come back after Jerusalem and go to Rome. Well, God had other plans. And he eventually does make it to Rome, I'll tell you that much. Talked about the recipients. Who are, the, who are these Romans? I offered to you last week, and this is important, that the book of Romans was not founded by an apostle. It's one of the reasons Paul wrote the book. It appears to have been founded by a group of Jews who went to Pentecost. While they were at Pentecost, they hear the preaching of the church. The church begins on the day of Pentecost. They get saved, and they take that gospel and that truth back to Rome, and they start these churches and these house churches. And again, I can't go into all the background we did last week, but that's what leads to Paul writing this book, that's dually two things. It's a letter. We're reading the introduction, kind of the greeting this morning. But very quickly, it's going to turn into a doctrinal treatise, the greatest the Bible has to offer for us. Why? Because since Paul is, here's his thinking. Since you were not founded by an apostle, you need grounded in the faith. And so he's writing them this letter of doctrine. With that in mind, I want to read verses 1 through 7 again. And I invited you last week to picture as if you were in that church, in one of those churches in Rome, as they received for the first time this scroll. And, and they roll out maybe, I don't know, 20-some feet of a scroll, and a man stands and reads probably for hours from verse 1 all the way through chapter 16. We're not doing that today. Verse number 1. Paul. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart, For the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son. 
who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're you're working that handout today, I'm going to have four points, but the first one is last week's message, all right? We've got to touch it to kind of get the running start. We looked at Paul's calling, number one. Paul's calling what? He had a calling in verse number one to be a servant. And of the six words he could have used in the the Greek language, Paul chose the absolute strongest one, which meant I'm a slave of Jesus. I'm a slave. I was bought at a slave market. I have no rights. But guys, it's not an oppressive slavery or service. Paul also is using a word in which is a bond servant. I want to be bound to my master. He owns me. I own him. I love this new relationship. He's called to be a servant. Secondly, he's called to be sent. Paul says, called to be an apostle. An apostle was a specially called person who was sent out in the name of Christ. And then third, we looked at this last week, he was called to be set apart. You see that verse 1? Set apart for the gospel of God. So point number two, see how fast? Man, I'm doing good. You're like, man, he's got four points. He already went through number one. The second one is uh, the longest of the four, okay? I will warn you that because it has two sections to it. Look again, if you would, uh, and we're going to look at God's gospel. We've seen Paul's calling, very simple outline today because it's very simple in the text. If you were to read this ten times, I promise this is what you would say. You'd say, okay, wow, Paul introduces himself. He starts talking about the gospel. It is God's gospel. Verse number one finishes, Paul says, I am set apart for the gospel of God. For the gospel of God. Real quick, say it out loud. Gospel means good news. What we're going to talk about in the next few minutes is God has promised I have good news. And there's two main things I want you to see about the good news of God. Number one, it was a promised good news. It was a promised gospel. It was promised. Now, let's get grammatical just for a second, but it's really simple. I'm going to go back and read verse 1 and the start of verse number 2. Paul, because there's three people mentioned in verse 1, watch, Paul is servant of Christ Jesus. Called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised. Who is the he? God. Certainly not Paul. Paul said, which I promise. He doesn't say that. It's not even saying Jesus Christ. It's going back to the nearest antecedent. So the pronoun, he is pointing back to God at the end of verse number one. So you say, man, you're doing some real basic stuff. I'm going to be real, real basic, real simple today, especially in this first part. Watch this. He promised. God promised. Who promised? God promised. Now, look at verse number two. And again, somebody help me out. How did God promise? Through the prophets. Everybody catch that? Who promised? God promised. How? Through the prophets. So as we read the Old Testament, we ask ourselves, who's doing the talking there? Is it the prophets or is it God? Yes, they're writing, they're speaking, but ultimately, guys, you got to get this. God's doing the talking. God is doing the promising. I think what Paul might be doing is this. Hey, Jews... God has been promising a gospel and you have missed it because you have other writings. You've been focusing on those and you're like, we haven't seen your version of some good news. We don't see that. And Paul's like, because you've been downplaying the, the Old Testament prophets. You've gone away from the word of God and you're putting a lot of weight into what people say. You say, well, I'm glad we don't do that today. Have you been down to the bookstore lately? I'm not talking about Lifeway. I'm talking about the big one in the mall. Have you been down there? Go down there one day and go to the religious section. I'll tell you what you'll see. You'll see hundreds of people ready to tell you about God. I've encountered, and I'm intentionally using this word, many. There are many people who claim relationships with God. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Oh, God, and I, yes, I know God. I talk to God. He talks to me. 
Many people claim a relationship, a real one. I mean, like, man, they've got, they've got conversations. But they don't read his word. Let that sink in. Oh, yeah, I talked to God, and, and God told me that I need to leave them or leave her or I need to do that or I need to buy that one and, and I need to sell that and, and I'm supposed to go into this and how, how do you know that? God told me. Are you in the word of God? Well, no. And you may think I'm being smart, Alec, here. I'm really not. If, if this is you today, you're like, man, I never really put myself under the teaching and preaching of the Bible and I sure don't get the Bible out myself. I don't mean this sarcastically or smartelically, here's all I would ask. How do you know that's God talking to you? How do you know that's God giving you those impressions that you're living your life by? Two words. What if, what if what? What if you just created those talks? No, 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 God and I, and I just knew. Hey, why are you doing it? Because I just felt God Hey, how come you're not kind of, how come you're not with us anymore? Well, I felt like the Lord was leading me. Really? Are you in his word? Well, no. How do you know that's not just you making it up? Can I go further? And you're going to say, man, you're being me. How do you know that's not you, what you want, and you're inserting it into your mind, and you're making up a whole, what if the dialogue is actually a monologue that you created? What if you're deceived? You say, by who? The Bible says our hearts are desperately wicked and deceitful. Who can know it? We can fool ourselves. You say, is that all? I don't have time to get into it, but there are these, you're going to think I'm really crazy. There are these unseen beings who are all too willing to deceive people in the whole conversations. And they're running their life, but they're never in the Word of God. Are you sure you want to trust that? So now that person hears this and says, hang on there, preacher. Now, wait a minute. Are you telling me, are you implying that God doesn't talk to people and prompt them apart from the Bible? That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that the Scripture, the Bible, is how we know for sure what God is saying. And I'm going to say it with this. Any supposed private conversations we are having with him must be in alignment with the clear truths of what this book says to be trustworthy. If it's trustworthy, you say, well, what if it's something that's not even covered in the Bible? Then maybe he told you that. And maybe he said, do that and don't do that. And go. Maybe. But I'll tell you, if you're not in the Word and under the Word, you kind of disqualify yourself from going, living life saying, God and I have this tight connection. Because Paul says it's a promised gospel because God was talking through the prophets. When the prophets wrote, God spoke. Christianity, what Paul is saying in verse number 2, Christianity is the New Testament fulfillment of the Old Testament prophets' promises. I'll go further. I'm going to tell you that Christianity, we live in the church age, the Christianity that Paul is teaching and preaching is the natural, supernatural, inevitable, better sequel to what the prophets, I'm going to go ahead and say it, the better sequel to what the prophets wrote in the Old Testament. You say, now are you downgrading? No, I just promoted the Old Testament, so you should have caught that. I am not downplaying the Old Testament, it's the Word of God, but here's the key. The Old Testament is the root, the New Testament's the fruit. The Old Testament was pointing to it all along. What Paul is saying, look at verse number 2. The gospel of God which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Spirit. In the Holy Spirit. In the Holy Scriptures, I'm sorry. What Paul is saying is the prophets predicted what you would be looking for for the good news. We're looking for a Messiah. We're looking for the Christ. We're looking for a Savior. How will we know who he is? What are we looking for? And the Bible gives us several things. One scholar actually enumerated some 300 prophecies concerning Jesus. Some 300. You say, wow, 300. I wonder what those are. I don't have time to give you 300. Can I give you 21? You're like, 21. Man, this is going to take forever. I promise it won't. Let me give you 21. And some of them you're going to say, well, that was actually like two. Yes. Way back in Genesis chapter 3, God tells the woman... There's something you need to know about this deliverer, this 
Christ, this anointed one that's coming. I'm going to give you two things way back in Genesis 3. You ready? Here it comes. He'll be human. You say, well, of course. No, no, he could have done another way. He'll be human. Number two, it'll be a he. Because the serpent's going to bruise his heel, but he will crush the head of the serpent. And then the Bible tells us what to look for further from there. So that's in the book of Genesis. We could get many, many more, but let me just give you 19 more. You ready? Fast forward thousands of years, and here's what we're told. The Messiah is going to be a descendant of Abraham. Okay, so it's going to be a human, it'll be a male, and it'll be a descendant of that man. But we've got a problem. That man has eight sons. He has eight males. So it's going to be one of, the, one of the, those lines. He has an older son, Ishmael, and he has a second son, and then he has these six boys by this other later wife by the name of Keturah. Which one? Catch what I'm about to say. Listen carefully. It's the second birth. It's the second birth. It's not, Ish, it's not Ishmael. It's Abraham's descendant through Isaac. Well, Isaac has a brother. Has, I'm sorry, Isaac has two sons. Which one is it? If it's going to be a human and is a male, a descendant of Abraham and a descendant of Isaac, well, he has a couple of boys. Which one is it? Listen, it's the second birth. It's not the oldest. It's the second. It's not Esau. It's through Jacob. But Jacob has 12 sons. Once again, it's not the oldest. This time it's not the second, but it's through Judah, through this line of Judah. Now we fast forward like seven, 800 years, and the Bible reveals more. It's going to be through this man whose name is Jesse. So it's going to be Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, and there's going to be this man named Jesse, and it's going to be one of his sons through which the kingdom is going to continue and be perpetual throughout. Well, the problem is this man has eight, and Samuel goes to anoint the king, and he goes, well, God, not, not, but he looks, the, it's not him. Surely the second, not the second. It goes through all seven boys. Jesse, are you sure this is, well, yes, all the boys. I mean, we got the other one, but he just keeps cheating. He's just, he's just young. Well, bring him in here. In comes David. Ah, that's the one. This is him. And we know it's going to be through the line of David. The Messiah would be born in Bethlehem according to the book of Micah. He'll come up out of Egypt at some point in his life, which is exactly what happened. Isaiah tells us he'll have the ability to perform miracles and healings. That's two separate things. Zechariah gives us four. Watch this line, four things. He'll be betrayed by a familiar friend for 30 pieces of silver. Did you catch that? He will be betrayed. It'll be by a very familiar, a close confidant, someone that was in his inner circle, betrayed by a familiar friend for 30, not 29, not 35, 30 pieces of silver, not gold, but silver. Four things right there and just in Zechariah. Isaiah 53 says he will receive stripes. What does that mean? He's going to apparently be lashed, stripes. And then he, when he dies, he's going to be numbered with transgressors. He'll die with criminals. But then he'll be buried with the rich. That makes no sense. No one who's dying with criminals is going to be buried with the rich. Jesus was. Psalm 22 tells us he'll be pierced in hands and feet. Hold your spot here. Would you go back with me? Acts chapter, it's just a few pages away. Acts chapter 17. We actually looked at this Wednesday night. I want you to see it very quickly. It's a promised gospel. That's what I'm trying to get you to see. The prophets told us what to look for. Acts chapter 17. Wednesday night we looked at this and as part of our study because of the words that are used and how Paul preached and taught. Paul's on the second missionary journey this time. He hasn't even been to Corinth yet, which we mentioned earlier. Look at verse number 1. So Paul is leaving the city called Philippi. You've heard the book of Philippians, so verse 1. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis, so they've left Philippi, they go to this town, Amphipolis, keep on moving. They go through that on into Apollonia. But they keep on moving, the Bible's insinuating, so much so that verse number 1 says they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. I don't know how many Jews were in that synagogue, but let's just pretend, pretend today we are a synagogue of the Jews. Let's put ourselves into the text. This is us. This is how many were there that day. Let's pretend. And Paul went in. He finally found a synagogue in Thessalonica. Maybe that's why he didn't go to Ap didn't stay long in Ap uh, Amphipolis and Apollonia. But Thessalonica is a big enough city. It has a synagogue of the Jews. Paul went in, as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days, for three Saturdays in a row, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. That word means he asked questions and they asked questions and they answered back and forth. That's how Paul would preach and teach. 
Verse number three says explaining, meaning he would take passages of Scripture and cross-reference different passages of Scripture. Paul's an expert at this. Remember, he was taught by Gamaliel and especially taught by the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse three, explaining and proving, meaning he would use stories and anecdotes and, and object lessons, proving that it was a nest. Watch verse three. For three Sabbath days... He's at the Jewish synagogue explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. So we're there. And it's a little different format than this. You know, here we, got, we get up and we preach and everybody mostly listens. Uh, yesterday we had a, a lot more interaction as we were talking to the men and we got asking questions and taking from the floor. I've done that a couple of times today, but Paul is doing much more of a classroom style setting. So picture it. This is what's just happened. Verse number three, I'm, I'm picturing a guy going, raise his hand. Yes, sir. Yeah, what is it, Joseph? Yeah, uh, I got a couple of questions. Number one, why has nobody ever told us this stuff? Everything you're saying connects. This makes total sense. Why have we never seen this? Because uh, your leaders have avoided it. They don't like what it says. They're looking for a king. They want somebody to defeat Rome. So they've been telling you what they want to hear, what they want to preach and what you want to hear. Yeah, Joseph, got a, I got another question. One more question. Are you saying it is possible for the Messiah, the Christ, to be hated and rejected, even killed by his own people, us? Are you saying that's possible? And Paul's like, no, no, no. I am not saying that's possible. I'm saying it's mandatory. It's mandatory. The Christ must be hated and rejected and killed, and he will rise from the dead. If anyone claims to be Christ that does not do that, then that, they are not the Christ. I'm telling you, it has to happen this way. It's a promised gospel. Back to Romans very quickly. Look at Romans. Second thing under our second point, it's a personal gospel. Verse number 2 leads into verse 3. It's the gospel of God which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son. You heard that. I hope I listen. It's a, it's a personal gospel. You say, yes, it's personal. Every single one of us needs to receive the gospel. Absolutely, that is true. But really what I mean is this more. You ready? The gospel is about a person. And aren't you glad, Grace View, that it's not about a list of rules? I sure am. I'm glad we don't come every week and we kind of give you this week's checklist and you bring it back next week and look, I did good and, and I sign it or one of the deacons or elders, did you, did you do this, did you do that? Yeah. All right, Here, here's this week's. It's about a relationship. The gospel's personal. It's about a person. I'm going to tell you the gospel is consumed with Jesus Christ. He's the good news portion of the gospel. Jesus is the message that God really does love mankind and he doesn't just say it, I have proven I love mankind. You know what I thought about? And I might be wrong, so this is not a definitive statement. I just wonder, Jeff, is there a passage in what we, anywhere in the Bible, the Old Testament included, is there a passage that I could preach on and try to do even halfway justice to it and never mention Jesus? You're like, well, the Old Testament, I'm sure you could. I don't know that you can. My devotions right now, you know where they're at? They're in Leviticus. And you may hear that and go, ooh, man, that's dry. Sorry. Keep moving. Keep pushing through. You'll get through. You know what I see all through there? There's, it's all these descriptions of sacrifices and offerings. It is Jesus over and over and over. He's the key. Some may disagree, but I'm going to offer to you. Technically, you could remove Muhammad. And the message of Islam is basically the same. You could remove Siddhartha Gautama, Buddha, and his teachings pretty much stay intact. But I'm going to offer to you, if you remove Jesus, what if you remove Jesus from grace view completely? He's nowhere in our singing, nowhere in our preaching. He's not in children's church. He's not in any life group. He is in nothing we do. I'm going to offer to you, if you take Jesus out of it, there is no gospel and there is no Christianity. You say, well, there's still some good news. The Tigers won. They will still be champions. Okay, think about this. Yes, so what? If at the end of it all, I'm going to die and go to hell? If I know that's hanging over me, my team can win every year. Who cares? 
that is meaningless if I'm living under condemnation, but there really is good news, and it is all attached to Jesus. I'm trying to tell you, everything about the gospel is about Christ. It's always about Christ. If you remove him from the Old Testament, there's no anticipation of the Christ that is to come. All you have is like millions of dead animals, and they have no power to save us. We're just left in our sins. What I'm talking about here, this is why we make a big deal and why we will always make a big deal about Jesus. Because the gospel is personal. The gospel is not a pivot from God. The gospel is not a change of plan. The gospel is the plan. Jesus Christ was not this great, brilliant invention that God came up with. Uh Uh-oh, my experiment went awry. Did you see what happened? Oh, you, son, let me, you go and fix it. Listen, guys, I want you to catch this. Before God created the universe, and I don't even understand what I'm about to say, I'm going to challenge you, if you were to go with this and really think and go layer by layer, I'll tell you where you will end up. You will end up humanly concluding God invented sin. You will conclude humanly God is the author of sin. I know he's not. He is not the author of sin. The Bible says that. I don't understand it because I could see how it looks like that. Here's all I know. Before God made anything, he already knew that the creation is going to go into sin and they will need a Savior. But the point all along was that Christ will be the firstborn, the highest ranking among many brethren. That was God's plan all along. This isn't a pivot. This is the plan. It's always been about Christ. Number three. Verse number two, again, I'm sorry, verse number three says, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So our first, again, we looked at Paul's calling. We looked at God's gospel. Now you say, didn't we just talk about God's son? Yeah, but we need to focus a little bit more on our third point today is God's son. The Bible says... The gospel is concerning his son. I want to borrow from John MacArthur. He writes the following, relays a story to us. Listen carefully. In his commentary, he writes, the story is told of a very wealthy man, very wealthy man in many areas, but he's going to focus on just one area. The story is told of a wealthy man who had many valuable art treasures. His only son was quite ordinary, but was dearly loved. When the son died unexpectedly as a young man, the father was so deeply grieved that he died a few months later. The father's will stipulated that at his death, all his artworks were to be publicly auctioned and that a painting of his son was to be auctioned first. On the day of the auction, specified painting was displayed and the bidding was opened. But because neither the boy nor the artist who painted the picture of the boy were well known, a long time passed without a single bid being offered. Finally, a longtime servant of the father and a friend of the boy very timidly bid 75 cents for the painting because that's all the money he had. And when there were no other bids, sure enough, the painting was given to that servant. And at that point, the sale was stopped because an official stepped forward and read the remainder of the will, which very clearly specified that whoever cared enough for the son to buy the painting of him would receive all the rest of the estate. That's a picture of the gospel. You see, God made a rule that anyone, listen carefully, if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, you need to hear this. I'm telling you in different words, but very clearly what the book of Romans is going to be teaching us. Anyone, here's God's rule, anyone who loves my son and receives him will inherit everything I have. God made a rule. The good news of God is that everyone who receives his son by faith, not even 75 cents, Whoever receives his son by faith will immediately be blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's the law of God. That's the good news. The good news is about Christ. It's predicted, prophesied, promised. It's about a person. It's ultimately about the son of God. 
Look at verse number three. The Bible says concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh. Is that even important? I mean, really. Okay. So this eternal son of God becomes, wait a minute, the eternal son of God becomes a descendant of David. Listen, that is extremely important. Have you guys ever read the very first verse of the New Testament? Look at Matthew chapter 1, verse number 1. Matthew 1, verse number 1. Here's how the New Testament begins. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. You see that? Matthew's saying, I'm going to show you how Jesus is the Christ because he's the son of David. David was a king, and that's the line, and Jesus is part of the line. Revelation, the very last chapter of the New Testament. New Testament kicks off with that. The New Testament ends five verses before the last part of, of Revelation, chapter 22, verse 16. Watch what Jesus now says. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I, Jesus, says, I am the root and the descendant of David. Did you catch that? I am the root. Wait a minute. So David came from you and you came from David. Yes. As the eternal son of God, Jesus created David and then the eternal son of God became a human and he became a descendant of David. And that's important. I don't know if you're excited about Friday. Some of you are. I know you're excited about Friday. And some of you may be fearful about Friday. And some of you may be uninformed about what's happening Friday. There's going to be a little change in our country. Can I tell you something? Isn't democracy great? Aren't you thankful for the United States? Democracy has served us pretty well for 240 years. And of all the countries, I don't know about all of them, but I, what I do know, I am really thankful I, I get to live where I do. It's great. Do you know what blows democracy away? A monarchy. You say, well, yeah, but what if the king is wicked? Yeah, but what if the king is the king of all the other kings and he's the prince of peace and he's the righteous one? He's coming. He is the king. That's what Paul is trying to tell us. The truth, the fact that Jesus Christ is the son of God is at the center. A while ago I told you, you cannot remove Jesus and keep Christianity. You take Jesus out, there is no gospel, there's no Christianity. I'm telling you this, if you take the fact that Jesus, the Christ, the man Jesus, that's his name, Christ just means the anointed one, but I'm telling you, if you remove the fact that he's also the son of God, you tear everything down. Because if you do that, here's what's happened. You're going to have a couple of problems. Number one, if you say, well, he's just a man, but he was a, just a really good teacher and just a sinless man. Okay, the Bible says none are righteous. All of us humans have sinned. If he's just a man like we are, then the Bible's a lie. Secondly, I would say if he's just a good man who never sinned and even died on a cross, then all he could do is die for one other man because he's just a man. And we go, yeah, how in the world? And the, and the unsaved people really puzzle at that. You Christians are wacko. How can one man dying on a Roman tree save a whole human race? That's because you don't understand that he's also the son of God. It's key. If I taught you in seventh grade and you're here this morning, would you raise your hand? I see one, two, didn't teach Jonathan, three, four, Eric was in the last group, James, five, I got five or six people. They've heard what I'm about to say. Now, this is a little bit corny. It's not a perfect illustration. It has some flaws and it's seventh grade level. You ready? Seventh grade. A little corny. But I want to get the point across. Jesus, Son of God. All right. Dogs. Dogs have offspring. We wouldn't call them their children. When dogs have offspring, what do we call them? They look cute little puppy. At the end of the day, a puppy is a small dog. Good, man. Y'all are really good. Y'all are just as quick as the seventh graders. Cats have offspring. Cats have kittens and kittens at the very core of it all kittens are small cats so cats have cat got it. dogs have puppies which are small dogs cats have kittens goats have offspring I taught you did you raise your hand no I got you in 8th grade you were already I was, I, when I came Brittany was already in 8th grade so I didn't have time to corrupt her I only got to a few, couple other times goats have what kids and a kid oh that's my little child no Actually, a kid is a small... Okay, here's what I told those little seventh graders. Hey, guys, listen. I'm trying to get across. 
Dogs have dogs. Cats have cats. Hippos have hippos. Giraffes have giraffes. If God says Jesus is my son, and since he's God and Jesus is, the, is God's son, then that makes Jesus God. Oh, y'all are good. That's major. That's major. Humans, we have humans. Cats have cats. Now you're saying, so God had Christ? That's the flaw. He's not the born offspring sometime in eternity past. Jesus has always been God. He is God. Would you look again at verse number four? He was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Having already mentioned how Jesus fulfills all the Old Testament prophecies that were predicted of him, now Paul gives us two other evidences of the deity of Jesus Christ. Number one, he says the Holy Spirit says that Jesus is the Christ. And by the way, there's no greater witness than the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit wrote the Old Testament and therefore the Holy Spirit had already pointed to Christ. But when was the other time? Again, I'm, forgive me, I'm like classroom today. When was the other time the Holy Spirit made real clear because he gave a symbol, a symbol when he went on him? At Jesus' baptism, the Holy Spirit says, He's the Son of God. And then Paul offers at the end of verse, or in the middle of verse number four, He was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. See that word? Actually, I'll come to that in a second. The resurrection also proves that Jesus is the Son of God. And there's no stronger proof. The mystery, can God die? Man, I don't know. Well, he did. He became a man just so he could die. And then the resurrection of Christ proved who he was. I want you to notice one special word. Verse number four, it's the third word in. Paul uses a word, and he was declared to be the son of God. The word declared is where we get our word, and they would have gotten another word for horizon. Y'all know what the horizon is? Horizon is where you're looking out, whether you're at the beach, looking out at the ocean, or whether you're up on the mountain and you're looking out on the distance. The horizon is that line of demarcation that separates the earth from the sky. That line right there means the earth has ended, and then there's that line, and that's where the sky begins. This separates the two. Here's what Paul's saying. How do we know Jesus is the Son of God? Because the resurrection is the line of demarcation that puts Jesus in his own category. All the other billions of people, they live and they die. And yes, a very few, like eight other humans, were resurrected in the Word of God, but they, none of them resurrected themselves. Jesus, there's a line between him and every other human being, and the line is he called it before he did it. Again, going back to an old corny illustration, those of you who've ever played pool, eight ball, you know that before you hit the eight ball, you've got to call which pocket. Jesus says, I will come back from the dead after my death. And he called everything exactly like he made it happen. And I've always jokingly said, it's like playing pool and saying, eight ball, this pocket off of 21 reels. What? 21 reels. You can't possibly. Aha, it didn't. Call it. You got lucky. 21 rails, that's not luck. I called it, I made it happen. Jesus says, I will come back to life. Based on that, I'm gonna offer you this. Somebody may say, ah, that's touchy. And I'm not saying this definitively, I'm gonna offer it. I believe, and I hope I'm not blasphemous here, I believe Jesus is the single most unique person in all of the universe. You say, well, we're all unique. You told us that yesterday at the men's breakfast. We are special, you guys are still special, I promise. What I'm telling you is Jesus is the single most unique person. There's billions of us. You say, well, what about God the Father? God the Father is God. God is spirit. But the Holy Spirit is God and is spirit. And Jesus is God and has eternal spirit. But Jesus, if I'm reading it correctly, Jesus is the only person who's a human being with a body, soul, and spirit. And he's God, eternal spirit. He's the one and the only. Jesus became what we are so that we could become what he is accepted with God he's the only begotten so he's different but we get to become the adopted children of God and lastly would you look with me at verses 5 through 7 I want you to see Paul's apostleship and Paul's audience look at verse 5 
talking about Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received. And the we there really means Paul. He's using that for himself. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship. Paul's saying, through Christ I have received grace, salvation grace, and also I've received a calling. I'm sent for a special reason. What's your pur- what is your calling? What's the purpose of it? To bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Look again at verse number 5. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship, and there's three things about it. To bring about the obedience of the faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. What you just read is his aim. Number two, his motive. Number three, his scope. Real quick, can I cover that? Paul, what's the purpose of your apostleship? What's all your energy going toward? to bring God's people to the obedience of the faith. Christians, let me talk directly to you for a second. You say, Jeff, you talk about this, this one passage like every time you preach lately. I know it goes back to even late November. I've just been on it. I was on it Wednesday night, and we'll be on it a little bit more Wednesday night. Matthew 28. Here's what Jesus says. Since I have all authority, go into all the nations, teach them, go get them saved, get them baptized and then teach them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded now if if we do that verse then we go win people to Christ we get them to go public then we start teaching them the commands of Christ like Paul a willing servant I want to know what pleases the Lord and so they begin to have what's called sanctification they become more and more holy but listen it doesn't stop there it doesn't stop there because the command of Christ the very last one was for them to now go make disciples who make disciples who make disciples I don't even know if I got to the end of it last week, but God's plan, it was in the notes, I don't don't think I said it. God's plan has never been about addition by everybody gathering together and watching the quote-unquote professionals. It's always been about multiplication by all the people of God fulfilling the Great Commission. So here's Paul's purpose. Paul, what are you about? I want people to come to obedience of the faith. Two parts. He said, man, it sounds like we finished last week. Christian, be holy. Learn the commands of God. Be holy. Be, I mean, be letting God work in you and stripping away sin and, and in the word and prayer and giving and, and all of those things. But you're not done until you're fulfilling the Great Commission. You're not done until you're taking the gospel message to someone else. Paul, what is your motive? He says, for his namesake. I find several things motivate me. Fear. Love. Reward. You say, is reward a bad motivation? No, Paul is being rewarded. He talked to us about being rewarded. Paul, was Paul ever fearful? Yes, he was fearful that people were going to die and go to hell. Well, that's the main reason to take the gospel. You know what Paul would say? That's a great reason to take the gospel. Hey, you're going to receive the soul winner's crown. That's a good reason to take the gospel. Is there anything better? Paul says, his namesake. Hey, Christian, if you're a soul winner and you say, I haven't won anybody to the Lord, but I've been telling like 50 people. And I've tried and I've tried and I've tried. Don't be discouraged. Let your motivation be His glory. It's about His namesake, His glory. And then you see the scope among all the nations. I'm almost done, but I want to plant this thought. Go back 1,950 years ago. You there? Go quickly. 1,900. They didn't have trains and and planes and automobiles. They rode where they were going and maybe they would throw a sail with it and pretty much the fastest way to get anywhere was on a horse so you're in that time period living in that world think with me where is the single if you're in that world where's the single most remote place in the world if you were in that world they think the world's flat where's the most remote place in the world where you're sitting right now In their world, Paul says, I want to get all the nations. He doesn't even know about North America. Do you understand that? They didn't call it Anderson, South Carolina 2,000 years ago. It was the most remote place in the world. So now here we are, populated this land, and there's still some pockets around the world. And you know what? God is calling us. Go reach them. But it's too hard. No, go reach them. Christ is coming. Paul's audience... You see it in verse number 7. To all those in Rome who are loved by God 
and called to be saints. I'm just curious. Mine doesn't. Does anyone in here have the words to be italicized in your Bible? Anybody? Uh, Brittany does. Anybody else? Uh, I grew up reading the King James only, but the Dennis's Bible has the... Does anybody know when the King James translators used italics for words? What did that mean? They were not in the original text, those actual words, what they would do. They would supply those words for the flow of the sentence. But here's, really, this is real. You could actually remove the words and you would still get the meaning of the text. If I were to take out those words, let's read it again. This is Bible. I'm not giving you heresy this morning. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called saints. Called saints. So what's that? Yeah, we're called to be saints. We need to become saints. We need to do better. We need to live more and more holy. Yes, we do, but I'm going to tell you why. We need to be becoming set apart and saints. Why? Because we have already been called saints. Here's my point. Christian, I'm talking to you. If you are a true Christian, you are a saint of God right now. You're like, whoa, I've never claimed to be a saint. Can I tell you what that little phrase is code for? I like to safe harbor my sin. I never claim to be a saint. Sounds like humility, but really it's ignorance or unbelief. Christian, you are a saint. You say, well, I, I, I want to become. No, you are a saint. I know the Roman Catholics, they hear that and they get all mad. No, there's St. Mary and St. Joseph and Mark and Peter and Paul and, and those are the saints and Valentine and George and, and Patrick. Those are the saints. I'm telling you, if every, anyone in here this morning, I don't you say, but I had a bad week and I didn't serve the Lord like I should have. Every person in here, if you are a Christian, you are a saint. And you have a calling. And I'm going to finish where I finished last week. Your calling is just like Paul. Did you see three times? Last week we had it in verse number one. We have it in verse one. I think verse six and verse number seven, three times. The word called or calling. Here's, here's the message. Here's the message. Here's the conclusion. God is calling all of us. You say, but I didn't see Jesus on the road to Damascus. I haven't heard his voice audibly. If you're a Christian, you are called to be set apart from sin and set apart to the gospel. Once a man came to the evangelist D.L. Moody. Told Mr. Moody and said, Mr. Moody, I do not like your invitation." I don't like how you do invitations. I don't think it's the right way to do it. I appreciate that, Mr. Moody said. I've always been uncomfortable with it, too. I wish I knew a better way. What is your method of inviting people to Christ? I don't have one, the man replied. Then I like mine better. Saints of the Lord. How do you invite people to Christ? How do you invite people? You. How do you invite people to Christ? Wednesday night we talked about the most, the most used number one reason God's people give. I don't know what to say. Then be here Wednesday night. Because we're going to give you plenty to say. I promise you that. Would you bow your head and close your eyes this morning? verse number 7 Paul concluded by saying grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ every person here this morning I, I want you to focus the best you can would you like to have peace in your life there are some people that would, honestly today they would pay huge amounts of money if they could have peace I've got peace in my life not because of me but there is no war between me and God because Jesus paid all my sins on the cross and he has access to God and he forgave me of all my sins. I would ask you, if you'd like to have peace, there is no true peace except in the order of verse 7. Grace to you. You have to have grace first. You have to let God give you salvation and then you can have, have peace with God. I'd also ask... Would you like to truly be able to call God your Father or are you just going to settle to be able to call God your Creator? 
I love being able to know that he's my creator but call him my father I'm going to tell you that is only possible if you take his son to be your savior I don't want to repeat last week's invitation verbatim but really the message ends exactly where that one did called, called, that's the theme verses 1 through 7 are all about being called Paul says I'm called to be an apostle, I'm called to be a servant I'm called to be set apart and then that calling ends up coming all the way to every Christian, we are called saints so what God is saying is Christian if you are saved, if you've received God's call to salvation, that call to salvation was also a call to be set apart, you are to be working toward being set apart because you already are set apart real simple without anyone looking around not even anyone on the stage no one looking around no one is there anyone here today that would say hey brother Jeff pray for me because I think I'm hearing God calling me to salvation I've never been saved would you just pray even if you say man I'm, I'm not ready to come forward or if you say I'm ready to come forward I'd like, I'd like to talk with someone anyone that honestly you just have courage to say you'll slip your hand up and say and no one looking brother Jeff and this isn't so much for me it's for you to confess and admit it you say I'm going to slip my hand up because I'm, I'm, I'm hearing the call of God God is calling me to salvation anyone I'm looking around anyone All right, saying for all Christians is God calling you to be a saint to acknowledge I'm wondering is there someone here today you say I needed to be reminded I am a child of God I am a saint he has already called when he called me to salvation he separated me but brother Jeff I've got a few things in my life I need to get rid of and again this isn't for me no one looking around don't don't even listen for movement is there anybody this morning you say brother Jeff I am saved and I acknowledge what verse 7 is teaching I am I am a saint but I've got some things in my life that I need to get right with the Lord. Anybody like that? Several, several. Anybody? Thank you. you can put them down. Would you use this invitation song? If you need to come forward, that is great. If you need to deal with the Lord in your seat, that is fine as well.